Hello, this is Giselle Montoya. Shelby Schultz. And Chloe Wong. And you're listening to Spam Migration, a podcast about food pathways, imperialism, and globalization. This podcast was created for Asian AM 216 Global Asians at Northwestern University. The podcast is available on shellwishus2022.wixsite.com slash spam migration. This podcast was created in order to dive into globalization and how migration, militarism, and imperialism have impacted food pathways for decades. Globalization is a combination of the words globalization and localization. It was created to describe products that are present globally, but also transform or alternate it to meet the demands of the local market that it is present in. Going all the way back to colonization, we can see a variety of food pathways being created. For example, the introduction of New World crops through Colombian exchange showed exactly what globalization stands for. It introduced a new product to a different geographical audience. This includes the spices we use for certain recipes today, or vegetables, or even plants. At first, these might not seem so important, but the effect they had over the years is grand. Because of these pathways, different economic systems were created, the way we affiliate certain foods with specific cultures, and even the way we alternate ingredients for recipes while cooking. Militarism brings about a strong military spirit and policy. It enhances the subordination of any other matters in a country. The strong presence of militarism throughout countries have not only introduced new policies and force, but have brought with them an abundant amount of food. Among these canned foods was Spam, the topic of the day. Spam was important for sustenance of soldiers during imperialistic encounters like the Vietnam War and the Gulf War. Hormel Foods is only one among many organizations that aided the expansion of militarism. Finally, imperialism is best known as the extension of power through acquisition or political and economic control over an area. The term food imperialism has drawn quite some attention over the years. There's a fine line between referring to a food pathway as a cultural exchange or as appropriation. Culinary historian and chef Michael Twitty is a leader in the culinary justice movement. In 2016, at a TED Talk, he explains, Culinary appropriation and a culinary diffusion are two different things. But when you exploit people, this distinction, as he states, a natural process when people of multiple different cultures live close together in some environment and can't help but rub off on one another, and the other being about exploitation, abuse, theft. It's like obscenity. You know it when we see it. We can see this dilemma in the U.S. when we come across Mexican, Chinese, Indian, and many other cuisines, more and more restaurants claiming to be authentic and serving quote-quote authentic food. There's nothing wrong with learning about or eating other geographical cuisines, but problems arise when individuals start claiming them as their own or changing them to fit a specific food culture. From this, we then can see where people forgot where certain foods came from or start creating stereotypes of the culture that a certain food is connected with. Moving on to a specific pathway, Spam has had a great historical story. Formal Foods, for example, is a Fortune 500 company that manufactures and markets high quality brand name food and meat products globally. During World War II, Formal Foods sent the US military up to 15 million cans of meat per week overseas. By 1944, over 90% of the company's canned foods were shipped for government use. Among these canned foods was Spam. Actually, before this project and this research, I had no experience with Spam. I just believed it to be a certain type of canned food. But now I am amazed at the amount of connections it has to topics such as militarism and the way it's integrated itself to different cuisines. 
but I'd like to hear your guys' experience with spam. When did you guys first learn about it? Was it present at all in your life? I never had spam growing up in Texas. Spam actually has a pretty bad reputation amongst many white Americans since its creation in 1937. One factor could be its industrial nature. Many people don't even know what spam is except canned mystery meat. However, in contrast to most American processed foods, spam is not that mysterious. Spam is a preserved food that contains pork, salt, water, modified potato starch, sugar, and sodium nitrate. My family is from Hong Kong and spam is actually really popular there. A popular breakfast is spam and a fried egg on ramen. I did a little research and Ormo actually tried to rebrand themselves after the war to push spam as a popular home food. The rebranding wasn't very popular in places like the US but took off in Asia. Spam was appealing since there wasn't a lot of agricultural land in Hong Kong, so fresh meat was costly. As a British colony, Hong Kong citizens preferred and placed prestige in Chinese Western fusion foods, hence the birth of Spam and instant noodles. Yeah, I see. A little more on Spam, um, spam that, that I found was the negative image of Spam was maintained through two linguistic associations. Firstly, Monty Fiden's Smamala would associate the food with parity and lack of refinement. Secondly, and more recently, the word spam has become associated with unwanted emails, which I think I wouldn't be the only one to complain about. By drawing a comparison between unwanted mass emails and the food, this linguistic choice definitely signals a pejorative view of the accessibility and abundance of spam, the food. Another lesser known embrace of spam is the spam coup, centering the food in the Japanese poetic form, the haiku. Spam coup is a specific niche of haikus about spam. The genre of poetry began with the book Spam Coup, Tranquil Reflections on Lunch and Loaf by John Cho. However, it soon grew large enough to justify an entire MIT archive. Some major sections in the archive include addiction, jazz, poverty, religion, and sex. Thus, the archive displays the diversity of interpretation and context under which spam is considered and consumed. One particularly interesting section in the archive is titled Childhood Trauma. Rather than exploring serious trauma, these spam coups recount the quote-unquote trauma of being forced to eat spam as a child. Still, these spam coups reveal a different phenomenon, the centrality of spam to particular consumers. Many of the poems address eating spam often and the embarrassment that comes with it. For example, contributor Don M. Martin wrote, Yo mama eat spam, said one child to another, the supreme insult. One Asian-American blogger, Sylvie Kim, labeled this phenomenon as spam shame. She claimed that many immigrants bring their spam recipes from Asia to the United States and are met with shame due to the association between spam and poverty. Indeed, a huge part of the spam stigma comes from its associations with accessibility. Spam has been nicknamed the poor man's meal. Still, the can may skyrockets in popularity alongside economic downturns as it is a cheaper substitute for pricey meat. For example, in the Philippines, spam was introduced to people escaping Japanese invasion in the early 1940s. Due to wartime food restrictions, spam became a staple when the American military would distribute it. So after the war, spam remained behind as a symbol of Filipino-American relations. Filipino food is often a hybrid of native and Spanish food cultures with European and Asian, particularly Chinese influences. But the adoption of spam into Filipino cuisine displays how American military presence introduced a new ingredient, 
which was then incorporated into new, distinctly Filipino dishes. For example, Spam Sigalog is a breakfast dish where Spam is served with fried rice and an egg. Fried Spam is also very popular, which is cooked rice with fried Spam and ketchup. Many Filipino immigrants in the United States often send Spam back home, where it is considered a luxury item. Spam also became popular during World War II amongst Japanese Americans because Japanese cuisine was often kept from Japanese Americans in internment camps. Instead, army surplus food was provided, including Spam. So this American food was adopted in Japanese food with the dish Spam Musubi. Invented by Barbara Funamura, Spam Musubi features Spam on rice and wrapped in nori. Funamura opened a restaurant called Joni Hana in Hawaii that catered to people who were being trained for various companies such as Foot Locker. When these workers left Hawaii, they brought back Funamura's creation, expanding the reach of Spam Musubi globally. The emergence of spam also reflects a larger food trend in the 20th century toward the industrialization of food production and an increase in global food exchange with Asia. As a result, it reflects how pathways exist on a global scale, but also in a local context. Spam is an example of globally produced food being introduced into specific local contexts, where it is adopted and hybridized with the local cuisine. This process of adopting global foods on a local scale is known as localization. Spam's localization reveals how Asian countries adopted Western foodways in order to absorb and survive American invasion and control. Moreover, Spam has returned to American cuisine through Asian American restaurants, as it is rarely served in other American restaurants. So he can, a Brooklyn chef, claims that what you eat is a fusion of your national identity, your personal identity, and your family identity. She adds, and somehow Spam is there. Then, ownership of food must be questioned, as Asian countries contend with colonialism. Who does the food belong to? I don't know if we can answer that today, but I think it's important to problematize the current labels and norms. So Spam is actually one of the key ingredients in Budajige, which is a fusion stew of Korean vegetables and spices along with American processed beets. So in Korean, Bude refers to military troops, and jjigae means stew or soup. Bude jjigae is commonly referred to as army stew and enjoyed as a comforting soup or dish accompanying alcohol. It's popular in South Korea and Korean restaurants around the world, and also especially enjoyed by Korean Americans in the U.S. in dive bars or trendy restaurants. Despite its commonality today, not as many people know about its origins during the Korean War. Its very existence highlights the foreign military intervention and presence of the United States. So to give a little historical context, after the outbreak of the Korean War, starving Korean civilians had to do whatever they could to find food. Regina Park was born in 1944 in the Manchuria region of China. She recalls the hardships of the Korean War in an oral history for Korean American story. She remembers fleeing from Pyongyang, North Korea to South Korea and receiving porridge from American soldiers to survive. This is a portion of her oral history in Korean. The translation is, 
There were so many people starving on the streets at that time. American soldiers would cut drum containers in half and place them on top of stones like a pot. They cooked milk and long grain rice to give out porridge to people. When she was eight or nine, Regina's mother asked for her to go ask American soldiers for food and told her that the family would starve otherwise. She held on to an American soldier's leg and basically begged for food. Older generations dug through the leftovers of American army bases to gather any type of food that, that they could find. They called the leftovers of garbage stew. They found edible scraps and, and cooked it in water to make the first versions of army stew. They used abundance of processed meats in the trash and used spam sausages, sausages and other food items as well. Budajiga first surfaced in Ujangu, a city north of Seoul and home to an installment of the U.S. 2nd Infantry Division. People relied on the generosity of Americans in order to survive the days during and after the war. In addition to picking up from the trash, they also smuggled meats from off the army bases. Generosity is in extreme air quotes, given the circumstances of the country. While soldiers also gave out food, their military occupation indirectly led to widespread famine throughout the country and peninsula. Similar to how Spam was adopted into Filipino cuisine, Spam was adopted into Voodoo Jige, which still had traditional Korean ingredients like kimchi dumplings and rice cakes, but also included foreign ingredients. It symbolized a foreign intervention that had to be accepted in order to survive, even to the present day. In Ujangbug, there is now a Voodoo Jige street, the crown jewel. Olding Singdong and its founder, Hyo Jisuk, Hyo claims the original recipe of Bude Jige, which then spread throughout South Korea. Bude Jige was a food created out of a foreign context. Although it became a, fa- a fusion cuisine, it became reclaimed by Korea as a local cuisine. The process of localization remade army stew as a tourist product and one of Korea's favorite comfort foods. Quote, quote, foodie discourse in the United States often disconnects the stew from its military past and ironically markets it at a, a fusion dish. Food blogger and cookbook author Joshua Weisman describes his recipe for budejige as quick, affordable, and most importantly, delicious. An ideal food for college students on a limited budget. Okay, now listen up. This isn't just about college students, obviously. I just wanted to use that as a caveat to the point that it utilizes two of the main sort of dietary choices of a college student. That would be American cheese and ramen noodles. There you go. You see, this is a dish that was created during wartime. Amazing flavors emerged. They utilized what they had and what those things were, were like spam, hot dogs, ramen, American cheese. It almost feels like a college student meal and it's cheap and this is but cheaper. So uh, let's make this. In a Munchies episode, Michelle Zauner, the founder of Japanese Breakfast, sits down with Sarah Lee, a co-founder of Kimbap Lab, and Emily Kim, a YouTuber cook, better known as Mingchi, to discuss the results of migration on food. A lot of the chefs that I have talked to about their uh, different types of cuisine are very hesitant about the word fusion, and I think that it kind of has this sort of negative connotation here. For me personally, when I hear of like an Asian fusion restaurant, I, I generally like kind of like turn my nose up a little bit because I just assume it's like inauthentic and bad. I think that, you know, fusion for me, when I liked to add sriracha to just a turkey sandwich or, you know, I eat kimchi with pasta mm-hmm. a lot. So is that really fusion? Now that there's such a larger Korean American population here, do you feel like Korean food has changed to sort of Western taste a little bit. 
just around me, everybody makes authentic food. Mm. But when I go to the restaurant, you know, just like your restaurant, you know, just maybe they can change because they have to be creative mm -hmm. to bring that some more people. If this is a too authentic way, it's too spicy, too, too fishy, they probably calm down the you know, heat. Mm -hmm. Uh, I understand. One dish that I could think of that is from here that made it back to Korea and kind of came back mm -hmm. is uh, Korean fried chicken. When you go to Korean restaurants, I don't know if it's really always the right thing to say, like, oh, this is very traditional Korean fried chicken. Because, you know, <laughs> right, we're, like, right, right. you know, is that really authentic? Well, like, like, it's hard to, yeah, you know. It's like saying that, you know, this is really authentic jjigae because it's yeah. like, you know, Korean fried chicken, I think, mm -hmm. similarly, is also after the Korean War, probably, was yeah. also a Western influence. They question the authenticity of Budejuge because fusion is not an accident or simply because things taste good together. There are a specific set of circumstances that lead to the conditions of fusion food. The process of glocalization has simplified Budejuge into a popular and delicious Korean staple. By invisibilizing the history and memories associated with the food, the violence behind Budejuge is also neutralized. Another interesting aspect is how some Koreans recognize the memories of the Korean War and the dish, but see it as a sign of progress from South Korea of the past. Still present past, Korean Americans and the Forgotten War is a virtual exhibition driven by oral history excerpts, installation art, spoken word, documentary film, and other pieces. One of the exhibits is Rude Chige by Ji Young Yu. This is a multimedia exhibit of installation and performance art. A small video monitor is placed inside of a U.S. military sea ration can. Viewers must peek inside to see the time lapse of army stew and hear the cooking demonstration. Bude Chige talks about the confusing origins of these mundane objects. The living recipe of army stew is a permanent reminder of U.S. imperialism that left everlasting effects on the Korean peninsula, especially for older generations. Overall, the food pathways of SPAN display how food becomes both globalized and localized with the transnational movement of people. As the American military brought SPAN to Asia, Asian cuisine absorbed the canned food in their domestic cuisines. Then, these foods were brought back to the United States through Asian migrants. Some of these Asian Americans established restaurants, which serve as Asian spam dishes to Americans. Thus, the migration of spam parallels the complex migration of people and cultures that occurred during and after World War II. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Feel free to reach out to us using our website.